You're listening to Giro Vagando, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in Africa. Brian, buonasera. Buona Let's pretend this is take one. Okay. <laughs> it's not, but buonasera anyways. You're Wait, about to ask me something. Where are we, Brian? Well, Daniel, we are in Tirano. I, I thought you were just going to say we're in the north of Italy then. Well, um, we we've very a, much are. We've had a few attempts at that. Brian, have you had a good day? It's a, been a rainy day, a rare rainy day on this Giro d'Italia. We have retired to the underground bar really the bowels of our hotel for the evening in Tirano. It's nice and cozy here. The the rain started to fall really heavily when we were heading down from from the finishing climb really. Um well it didn't finish on the climb but it was a climb nevertheless, you know, going backwards at least. So it would have been a, quite a mess if the stage had actually seen that kind of rain in, in the final, especially on the descent from the Motirolo. It's a menacing place, the Valtellina, isn't it? The the valley where we finished today, where Aprica is. We were talking earlier about the some of the dark chapters in the history of that valley and the Valle Camonica, the next valley, the witch-burning trials that took place a few centuries ago. But it did look very menacing at the finish today. There was lightning crackling above our head as we drove down to Tirano. Brian, today was, according to the stats, according to the altimeter, the altimeter that I use anyway, which is provided by Velovia, which is the data service that most of the teams use. I don't think the roadbook agrees with this, but I think it was the stage with the most vertical meters. It was the Queen stage, 5,070, sorry, 5,047 meters of climbing, The second hardest stage, according to Velovia, was the Blockhouse stage with 5,015 meters of climbing. Did it feel like a queen stage? Was it raced like a queen stage? I would probably say no. Normally, we're probably expecting a bit more of a spectacle from the from the GC contenders. But it's it's it says a lot that a climb like Telio which I've done. You've got a, 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 Yeah, that was my a, Waterloo in the Gran Fondo Stelvio. Yeah. But that doesn't even count on this stage as a categorized climb. And it's literally like a wall. I said on Twitter today, I think that was probably the hardest uncategorized climb we have ever seen in a Grand Tour. Five point something kilometers at 8.2%. 5.6 kilometers at 8.2%. That would be a second or first category climb in the Tour de France. I'm glad you say that because it's the climb that really... It, killed it, my it broke gra- you. It broke my Grand Fondo Stelvio aspirations. Aspirations you had to be uh, a star of this sport on the bike, not just off it. No, th- these w- those were not present. Uh, we don't necessarily. This is a valley of of murky, crooked secrets. And if I could add my unsuccessful chapter as a Grand Fondo rider to so that, I'd be happy with. Talking about unsuccessful chapters, should we? attempt the tale of the tapper today because it's been a busy day there's been a lot of driving there's been a lot of editing a lot of podcasting note-taking was quite a challenge but we will give it a shot here is the official tale of the tapper for stage 16 of the giro d'italia from salo on the western shore of lake garda there was lots of information about salo and its history in the kilometer zero that came out yesterday it went from salo to aprica 202 kilometers the first climb of the day was the passo croce domini a very famous pass for cyclists in the brescia area the first rider over the top was giulio ciccone winner of the stage in Cogne a couple of days ago and ciccone was one of 20 riders to successfully make it into a breakaway on the Croce Domini. They featured Wilco Keldman, Leonard Kemner, Jan Heert, Timon Aronsman, Chris Hamilton, Guillaume Martin, Alejandro Valverde, Hugh Carthy, Lucky Lorenzo Fortunato, Simon Yates, Kern Bauman, Davide Formolo, Wout Poles. I've almost named them all. I should also say that there had been several earlier attempts to get into breakaways or to to make the break of the day including one from mark cavendish those 20 riders 
began the descent more or less together. Wilco Kelderman had some problems shortly after that mechanical problem. We suspected that Kelderman had been sent down the road as a satellite rider. Teams often use this tactic in mountain stages with multiple passes. Kelderman did eventually get back onto the breakaway group, but it probably cost him a fair bit of energy and he wasn't too useful for his teammates later on. The next climb up was going to be the Mortirolo, but it was the Mortirolo light. It was not the Mortirolo from Mazzo. It was from a place called Mono. It was the 15th time the Giro had, had tackled the Mortirolo. As we hit that climb, the lead group, so there'd been further fractures, the, the lead group featured Aronsman, Chris Hamilton, Valverde, Bauman, Kemner, Rota, and Wout Pauls. There was a second breakaway group, one minute behind them, Guillaume Martin, Ciccone, Cataldo, Hurt, Kelderman, Lucky Lorenzo, Hugh Carthy, Yates, Formolo, Van Sevenant, Silva Monique, and Filippo Zanna. And the peloton was about five minutes back and it was being led by Ineos. There was more action, more movement on the Mortirolo, as one would expect. There were about seven riders that detached themselves and came together at the front. Hamilton, Hurt, Carthy, Kemner, Bauman, Valverde, Aronsman. Bauman took the King of the Mountains point to consolidate his lead in that competition. Back in the peloton, Astana were pulling Brian. Now, we got a bit of a clue that this would be the case in the mix zone this morning when we spoke to Joe Dombrowski. Here's what he told us this morning in Salo. I think it's probably the biggest stage of the Giro. Uh, so far, I've been going in breakaways, trying to go in breakaways, but uh, today I'm going to stay with Vincenzo because... You saw the last few days, he's looking quite strong, and yeah, maybe the shark needs a minnow. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to need a bigger, they're all going to need a bigger boat at some yeah, point. Yeah. Well, there was going to be a bit of a shark attack, but it was going to come on the descent of the Mortirolo. Before that happened, Richie Port punctured, and that left Richie Carapaz with only Pavel Sivakov, our audio diary, as the lead group, the Maliarosa group, went over the top of the Mortirolo. We said that Nibali would attack. Um, well, he tried to use his descending skills to put pressure on Carapaz et al. Didn't get very far. Domenico Pozzovivo also crashed early on the descent of the Mortirolo. He eventually got back on, but would be dropped again later. And Brian, then the lead group, including Carapaz, approached the Telio, this climb that holds very sore, very painful memories for you. And there were various teams that tried to take things on today. And on the Telio, we would see Bahrain come to the front. And they seem to be setting up Mikael Lander. Meanwhile, there were further changes at the very pointy end of the race. Timon Arisman, Jan Hirt, Walt Pauls and Hugh Carthy had opened up a gap. And it looked at this point as though they would be the four to contest the victory. After the descent of the Telio, we had a solo leader... A survivor of that early break this morning and it was Leonard Kemner, stage winner already in the Giro. Behind him on the Valicor di Santa Cristina, Timon Aronsman attacked with 13.6 kilometers to go, tried to bridge the gap. Kemner at that point had a lead of about 50 seconds. This was followed shortly afterwards by an attack by Jan Hirt at 12.4 to go. But Aronsman was making ground on Kemner with 11 to go. He, he was only 25 seconds behind. That gap kept coming down. Um, Hugh Carthy eventually dropped Alejandro Valverde. And behind, in the Maliarosa group, Bahrain was still on the front. But Peo Bilbao had a bit of a tangle with Mikel Lander um, that stopped his progress, stopped his momentum. But he soon recovered, although... Shortly thereafter, we would see the first, the first major attack in the GC group when Carapaz, Hindley and Lander detached themselves. And meanwhile, Timon Aronsman had caught Leonard Kemner, gone past him and been joined by Jan Hit very briefly. So that ended up being a very decisive move, even if it was very, very close, bit of cat and mouse on, on the way up to Santa Cristina. The, the main action actually happened in the front group because it, it looked for a long time as if Hertz, again, Hertz's advantage was, was really not safe enough. But at one point, Aronsman and Kemner, who were struggling at this point, and Aronsman was just trailing, 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 but never really got close uh, enough to Hurt to, to do a counterattack. 
and Brian on the descent into Aprica, a very short descent, but a quite a treacherous descent. It started to rain by that point. There were a couple of slips and slides by Jan Hurt, but ultimately he had enough of an advantage over time in Aronsman, despite the fact that Aronsman was closing on that false flat up to the finish line in, in Aprica. And Jan Hirt went one better than he did in the 2019 Giro stage going over the Mortirolo. He was second on that occasion. It finished in Ponte di Legno. Today, he was the winner in, in Aprica. The GC group came in, well, the, 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 the best GC riders, the winners really of the day. Jai Hindley, Richard Carapaz, Alejandro Valverde, who we know has, has lost plenty of time on GC already, but... And Mikael Lander, they came in together 124 down. Hindley picked up four very useful bonus seconds. A bit further down on GC, João Almeida had been yo-yoing off the back of the GC group all day, or certainly for a lot of the day. He didn't lose much time in the end. He came in 138 down. Nibali was two minutes and six seconds down. And Pozzovivo had quite a costly day in the end he lost four minutes and 11 seconds so how does that leave the gc well carapaz is now only three seconds ahead of hindley because of those bonus seconds almeida 44 seconds down and Mikhail lander still under a minute 59 seconds down then there's a big gap to vincenzo nibli in fifth he's 340 down domenico pozzavivo is six at 348 down on the minor or marginal or certainly other classifications um kern bauman now has a commanding lead in the king of the mountains competition it was a good day for him he now has 167 points studio ciccone has 99 in second place joao almedia leads the white jersey competition by nine minutes over nine minutes from juanpe lopez and in the points competition as you would expect there was no change today arno demar is on 238 and mark cavendish is a long way adrift 121. There were a couple of DNFs today, weren't the Brian Loic Vliegen for Antel Marche, Jonathan Caicedo for EF Education Easy Post. He has tested positive for COVID. And much to the chagrin of our good friend Gianni Savio, Natnail Tesfazion of Drone Hopper Androni Giocattoli. Here's Gianni. <laughs> there was no formation. Again. Because, because in this stage, very, very hard, all the riders have the possibility to, to be free of uh, strategy. And Tesfazion, he was he feeling good this morning. Yes, this morning is, uh, is, is good because uh, he told me, Gianni, I am well, uh, I got to win, I got to win. Because <laughs> we, we are talking that uh, here in Africa we won in, uh, in uh, 90. 90. And uh, with Leonardo Sierra, one of the, of the riders that I put on the professional. And... Um, but uh, after in uh, in the race, uh, it was uh, not good. It was bad. You have a problem to stomach. Yes, problem to stomach. Gianni, let's go and eat some pizzoccheri and <laughs> look forward to another day. <laughs> pizzoccheri are the the pasta typical in this uh, country. Yes. Still gassing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Supersapiens. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. And thank you very much to Christina Scrutcher of the University of Verona. She's a sports physiologist who works with Super Sapiens. And I've been asking her some questions. And today's question is very simple. What should I be looking out for when it comes to my blood glucose levels before exercising? Should I be in a particular zone or does it depend on the type of exercise I've got in mind? 
we don't necessarily think that you don't need to uh, run fasted or that you don't need to train fasted. That's that's kind of not the point. The point is always what are you doing and putting this into a context. If you're doing a simple training before the breakfast because that's your habit and it's a short, low intensity training, I mean, why not? If you feel well doing it, absolutely yes. What we're really trying to push forward is that we can optimize our fueling in order to sustain performance. And that's where the visibility of the data, it's really important. So it's also different if you're going to do a really high intensity race, if you're going to do some really high interval intensity training, or you wake up in the morning and just want to go for a 20 minutes, half an hour run before starting your day and, you know, enjoy your run. So these are kind of two different contexts that you need to think of. And of course, we can't use the same <laughs> fueling strategy and we can't adopt the same glucose uh, levels concept to these kind of two separate situations that have totally different goal, totally different intensity and totally different purpose. Go to supersapiens.com to find out more about Super Sapiens. And before I hand back to Daniel and Brian in Italy, a quick shout out for all of your nominations for this year's Giro d'Italia Pedaler de Charm competition. Stacey Snyder has made a beautiful Pedaler de Charm mug, which we want to present to a rider who has earned it with some charming behaviour on or off the bike. So if anything has leapt out to you from this Giro or does so over the next couple of days, do let us know on social media. We're on Twitter at cycling underscore podcast or on Instagram, The Cycling Podcast, or you can contact us through our website, thecyclingpodcast.com, and nominate your rider and give a short reason as to why you think they are cup-worthy. And we will put together a poll and give everybody the opportunity to vote before the weekend. Well, Brian, before the break there, we heard Gianni Savio making a, a very timely culinary recommendation for this evening, pizzoccheri had them before you're frowning are you partial to pizzoccheri yeah it's not my thing i um i had a house in in not this area but we should explain what they are first yeah so it's a type of pasta that's sort buckwheat of pasta buckwheat pasta with it's very kind of grainy and fibrous yeah and the shape is there's sort of small ribbons it's kind of like ticker tape yeah they're not that pretty to look at not that they pretty to look of, at they sort of break that normal perception you would have of this like they're not dainty are they no this like the golden yellow pasta this is more sort of it's a bit it's a bit sort of rough isn't it a bit sort of it's really mountain food as you know obviously they're, they're kind of like area. tagliatelle cut with bad scissors yeah and then you drop them on the floor of a vegetable kitchen and whatever stock to the pasta you would throw would be part of the dish do you know where they're do you know where precisely they are reputed to be from no, my guess would be Sondrio, but yeah. Telio, which now has two claims to fame. It invented Pizzoccheri and it also invented or gave the world the hardest climb in Grand Tour history, never to be classified. They're also, they're drenched, they're saturated in cheese. And there's also, in the, the most authentic iteration of the dish, there is also cabbage, isn't there? I love it. I think it's fantastic. But I love most things about the mountains, um, which you don't, we've established, which I'm quite surprised about. Anyway... Brian, Jan put them all in the Hurt Locker today, didn't he? He's a rider who has thrived before in the Giro d'Italia. You're going to tell me what his best general classification finish was. Yeah, he was 12th on the GC in 2017. And as you said earlier, he was second on the, on the stage that went across the Motorola the last time where Giulio Ciccone won in 2019. Looks a bit like a sort of older, more grizzled Tadej Pogacar. He's There's tall, some f- physical yeah. similarities? Yeah, he's a tall, lanky rider, I would say, tall-ish. Um, but, uh, so I was at the press conference today at the, um, the Sala Stampa and uh, he spoke about his preparation of this Giro. He He's someone that would maybe normally fly under the radar a little bit. And that could be one of the reasons why he, he won today also. That, But he said he spent a lot of uh, time focusing on this year where he's lost some weight. He's done altitude training coming into this race. And he won the two of a month earlier this year. So he obviously had a good start to the season. But he hasn't actually raced that much. His last race before coming into the year was Vuelta Catalunya. He didn't finish that. But he spoke a lot about how 
his team, uh, Intermarché, Wanti, Gobert, have really come together and how the atmosphere there has helped all of them do great results. He has been on other World Tour team. He's never won before on the World Tour, but often as a helper. And here he's been given a lot more opportunities to go in the breakaway. And he was also asked whether he or why he hasn't done those kind of exploits early in his career. And he said, well, he he always had to help other riders, other, other riders mostly. And then he said, what actually that experience today of winning from a breakaway, because he got dropped initially and, and he just kept believing in it and came back and came back and then did the decisive move. And that's something that he credits his experience now being, you know, fairly seasoned bike rider at 31. Brian, he's from the same town in the Czech Republic as Pavel Padronos. Remember him? He was a sort of stalwart of Lance Armstrong's US postal team. And One Sayeko. of the tallest, heaviest climbers I've seen ever, probably. Yeah, Jan Her is is quite different in build from Padronos. But it was another fantastic result for Antel Marché, wasn't it? I mean, what a few months they've had. We talked in the we talked earlier in the Giro. Brian, about this team being a sort of motley, unlikely assemblage of different ages, different cultures, different or riders with very different palmares. A lot of riders who are, I wouldn't say in the last chance saloon or felt as though they were in the last chance saloon, but certainly riders who had been discarded by other teams or overlooked by other teams. I think Jan Herk could possibly fit into that category. Um, Someone did a money ball. Yes, that's what it feels like. Structuring that team, and they did extremely well, especially when you look at this year. Just to well, recap some of their most prestigious wins over the last couple of years, of course, they've now won two stages of this Giro, because, of course, in Yezi, Biniam Gamay was the winner. They won Ghent Wevelgem with Gamay. They won Skelder Price with Alexander Christoph. Last year, they won a stage of the Vuelta with Ryan Taramay, and they also had the red jersey for several days with odd Christian King. It's a team that's really punching above its weight. And I don't think we should forget Taco van der Horn. Of course, Taco. Well, he won the stage in the Giro last year in so, some lovely wine countries. Well, it was, Brian. Did it finish in Roero? We had some lovely red Roero uh, a couple of nights ago. I think it might have done. Yeah, I think so. Highly recommended uh, northern uh, Italian wine and uh, under, undervaluated, in my opinion. Well, Antel Marché have certainly been undervalued to a large extent over the last couple of years. People are being forced to take notice of how well they are performing. It seems like we've interviewed Valerio Piva a dozen or so times now about precisely this, how the team is overperforming, exceeding expectations. And indeed, this evening in Aprica, we spoke to him again about precisely that. Last year we did we have a good a good year I think because uh, was the smaller team uh, in 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 the World Tour uh, I remember when I started the Giro last year some in the in some conference some some journalists asked me uh, you manage a lot of here uh, big teams and now you are in a losing team uh, so sorry but uh, last year we won a stage in the Giro we won uh, the Vuelta we won a lot of race we have a red jersey in the Vuelta ten nine, nine days I think everything started last year for sure this year is much better and we have also big monument and we have better riders but I think. The riders understand, and they understand that artwork pay, and I think that is now the result. Uh, for sure, we need to score points, but we only score points if you win the race. That is, for me, the, the important message. We have no, we don't count the point uh, from the fifth to sixth. Okay, is good, but win the race uh, is what what we, we need to do, and then uh, and then we stay for sure. We, we have the chance to stay if you win uh, the race and you score points. So we don't look at the point, we look at the, over, at the victory. We change nothing. I think we change only the spirit from the, the team. Uh, the right, so when you start to win, you saw in every team the winning mood make everything easier. So And I think that is the, the reason why we saw now this success. So I don't think we change. We For sure, we, we adjust some things like training, like nutrition, like... But everything, everything do that. So uh, finally, is the it's the legs of the riders and the motivation of the riders that make the difference. Well, Brian, we've well, I've groused and griped a little bit in this Giro d'Italia, or I did certainly last week about there being not uh, having not been enough action 
and there haven't been a lot of stages that have equated to really good one-day races, essentially almost classics, but haven't offered enough in terms, or haven't given us enough meat on the bone in terms of the general classification race. Today, we were spoiled in both respects, I think. Okay, there weren't many changes or significant changes on the GC. A few people lost ground, but we had a fantastic race at the front in the breakaway. We saw... Hugh Carthy trying very hard again, as he did in Konya, as he did in the Val d'Aosta the other day, to well to break his duck and sort of salvage um, his Giro d'Italia. He hasn't had a disastrous Giro d'Italia by any stretch of the imagination, but I think he'll be disappointed if he doesn't go away with a stage win. We've seen him. In fact, one of his breakthrough performances a couple of years ago was on the Mortirolo. It's a climb that he seems to like. It's, um, it, 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 it's, a, it's an unlikely sort of acumen. He had predilection for very steep climbs he's a guy who doesn't look as though he would go well on steep climbs but of course he won on the angle at all i was about to say the side they went up of the motorola today it's not you can't really compare that to the the, the other side which is probably just as hard as the angle and the descent is also very treacherous as well we saw carthy struggle a little bit on the descent but i think everyone was struggling on the descent and Pozzovivo probably because i mean i was speaking to his agent uh, raimondo shimone the other day and he was going into great detail with me about precisely this issue that he has with i think it's his left elbow isn't it that it's it's sort of five centimeters lower he holds it five centimeters lower than his right elbow and that obviously causes a lot of problems when he's cornering when he's descending but it was a good stage wasn't it it was intense as we learned in the tale of the tapa there were a lot of sort of changes in momentum Kemner looked bound to take his second stage win um, at a certain point what do you make of Bora giving Kemner so much freedom I mean when I spoke to Jai Hindley after the stage in Konya and I pointed out to him that the team had really tried very hard to get Kemner into the break, or Kemner had tried very hard to get himself into the break very early in that stage. And back then, at the time, we assumed that that was maybe with a view to providing support for an attack from Hindley or maybe someone else or Buchmann later in the stage. Um, it wasn't. It was to try to get Kemner a second stage win. And that was the same today, really, although they also fired Kelderman down the road um, I should have said we talked earlier about not many changes in the general classification Emmanuel Buchmann had a bit of a disaster today he came in four minutes and 11 seconds down and has sunk to eighth place on the general classification yeah and interestingly you know we we're just talking about Antomashi they now have two riders in the top 10 in the GC because after his um, uh, breakaway today Jan Heer he moved three places up in the General Klassman, and he's now sitting at ninth. Shoot, uh, shoot that area du peloton. Cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's said PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Stitch Fix, which makes clothes shopping easy. It takes all of the hassle out of the process if, like me, you don't like traipsing around the shops. Instead, you get a box of clothes chosen specifically for you by your personal stylist. It's a service for both men and women, and it makes clothes shopping easy. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling and set up your profile. You'll then get five items of clothing chosen specifically for you to your style because you fill out a questionnaire which indicates the type of things you like to wear in your size and to your budget. They'll arrive at your door a few days later and you get to try everything on in the peace and comfort and relaxing environment of your own home before deciding what to keep and what to send back. There's no subscription required. Shipping returns and exchanges are free. And usually you pay a £10 styling fee. But at the moment, there's a special offer for Cycling Podcast listeners. Sign up and schedule your first delivery using stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling. And the styling charge for your first order will be waived. Recently, I received some a couple of pairs of trousers, a pair of jeans and a pair of chinos and a couple of long sleeve tops, which I was looking forward to wearing all of them at the Giro, but it was just so hot. They didn't even make it out of my suitcase. So I've actually been enjoying being back at home and uh, a chance to wear in cooler temperatures the clothing that I got from Stitch Fix last time out. You can get started today at stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling to try Stitch Fix personal service for free. That's stitchfix.co.uk slash cycling. If you keep all five items that you're sent, you also get 20% off. 
e da solo Pantani, tutto il pubblico, tutta la gente per lui si è tolto dalla scia anche Nelson Rodriguez il Giro d'Italia trova due nuovi protagonisti questo giovane Pantani già vincitore di tappa ieri e questo Miguel Indurain che sta evidentemente trovando la condizione migliore oh sì, eh, già la mattina that morning Pantani already wanted to attack on the Stelvio but I said to him, look, Mortirolo is a hard climb yeah, yeah, he said, but if I attack on the Stelvio I'll do more damage Anyway, he got to the Mortarola and started climbing as though the finish line was a kilometre up the hill. Nowadays, guys ride the Mortarola with a 32 sprocket at the back. Marco had a 23 and it hurt his pride even to use that. Once he got something in his head, it was difficult to change his mind. He wanted to blow the Giro apart that day and that's pretty much what happened. There's no doubt that a big part of Pantani's mythology came from the Mortarolo and his second stage win of the Giro that day. That's where we discovered the real Pantani. Ok, sì, sono Alessandro e gestisco il negozio della Tassoni Shop and Drink qui di Salò. Quindi Tassoni mi sembra che sia un marchio, comunque un nome molto conosciuto in tutta l'Italia. Assolutamente sì, è molto molto famoso e, e diciamo che ha contribuito anche in passato, a proposito del Giro d'Italia, a collaborare, è stato anche uno sponsor. Ecco. Well Brian, we heard there, first of all, from a very illustrious Giro d'Italia direct sportif Beppe Martinelli reliving the 1994 stage over the Mortirolo and over the Valico di Santa Cristina in which Marco Pantani dropped Miguel Indurain to win, to win his second consecutive mountain stage win of the Giro d'Italia. And it was a huge breakthrough for Pantani. It was his big breakthrough indeed. After that, we heard from uh, Alessandro, a new friend we made today in a, in a beautiful shop in Salò. It was the Tassoni shop. Now, there is a link between Pantani 1994 and Tassoni. We'll tell you a bit more about what Tassoni make, what they do in a second. But what's the link between Pantani 94 and Tassoni? Well, Tassoni was a very visible sponsor for the Carrera team also that year in, in 94. They were, had a very prominent place on the jersey, just below the relatively well-known, I guess, if you're into cycling in the 90s, the, the red Carrera jeans logo. So Tassoni was right, right below them. And that was us in the Tassoni shop in Salot this morning. Now, yesterday in our Kilometer Zero, we talked about the, well, the, the history of Salot um, relating to the 1940s and the Republic of Salot, the fascist republic, effectively, in Mussolini. Now, Tassoni is one of the, the more famous names in Salon because in 1950, the company was formed and they make various products, various drinks, uh, syrups, uh, cordials, liqueurs from citrons. Now, we talked a lot about citrons earlier in the Giro when we were down on the Riviera, the Cedri, on the, the stage from Palmi to Scalea. That was the stage of that Riviera. And well, Lionel and I went on a little bit of a mazy search quest to find these citrons, which are basically like large, they look like large lemons, but they're very prized for various different reasons. I could, very, have, I could have brought you one, I have them on my terrace. But they're not, they don't grow until, we were told we couldn't get them until September. Well, I think I caught mine, I, um, I did a bit of pruning, I pruned my lemon trees and my citron trees on the terrace, probably relatively unconventionally but what came out of it was definitely uh, a citron well brian they are very very prized um for well for their rind for their juice and tassoni initially made their cordials made their drinks with citrons from the lake garda area from just outside salo or around salo however alessandro explained to us that in the 60s they started buying them from diamante which was the the start town for the stage following the stage of the Riviera dei Cedri. We were down there just last week. Um, Alessandro said that the citrons down there are smoother. The essential oil from them is absolutely perfect to make uh, cederata, which is kind of a, a citron lemonade. And um, he says Tassoni have a secret recipe. And the, as I say, the Diamante Citrons are better than the Garda ones in that, for that particular recipe. And they only use the peel. The rind is sort of sent away and discarded, but it's, it's used by other companies 
for um, other artisans for things like Panettone and Canali, would you believe? Um, Tassoni was apparently quite big in the United States in the 1970s and 1980s. There were big adverts in places like Times Square and it became quite quite an en vogue drink. He says it's now very big in the Gulf states because, of course, in Muslim cultures, alcohol is not um, commonly drunk. And Tassoni is one of the more common local tipples. It's still a small company, only 29 employees. However, it's recently been taken over by the company, the group that controls Ferrari. And consequently, there are quite high hopes for Tassoni, well, reliving its glory days and becoming uh, an even more recognized brand than it already is. But it was a beautiful little stop off, wasn't it, for us in Salon? It's a typical thing with cycling. You know, we often will see the logos of various sponsors on jerseys and sometimes we have no clue what they are, what kind of, what kind of product they represent. And I started buying the, the Tassoni... Uh, Cedro syrup quite early when I moved to Italy and I, I like to mix it in water because during the summer in Italy, actually also early in this year, it gets really warm and sometimes you get a bit tired of just drinking water, so just that little touch of something else. And then when we saw that beautiful shop, I, I just opened the door and asked, do you have anything here that I can't find you know, anywhere else? And he said yes. So... I walked away with quite a few different we bottles. We walked away that I, with a few armfuls, didn't we? Yeah, that I'm gonna that I bought and I'm gonna bring home. It was a, it, it's it's not that I just you know a second nature support sponsors who or companies who sponsor cycling, but there is definitely an element in that as well that that you get more curious about what what type of product it is and the history with the sport and and Tassonis is quite significant. And just going back to Pantani and the Valico di Santa Cristina, I was talking to a good friend today, Federico Meda, who used to work for the Giro organization. He was at the finish and he was, he was talking about the significance of those two Pantani wins in 1994 as a kind of watershed for Italian cycling because we often forget that Italian cycling was really in the doldrums in the, in the 80s. They didn't have a single rider in the top 10 of the Tour de France for years. I think it might have been over 10 years. And in the early 90s, it was just when they were starting to turn a corner for... For fairly unsavoury reasons, in some cases, we know about the advent of and the emergence of EPO and how common it became in those years in the early 90s. And, and you know, there were certainly some very notorious Italian doctors, Italian teams. But as far as, well, as far as results were concerned, in terms of purely results, that was the start of a really unparalleled, unprecedented age of success for Italian cycling. And we were... We were reminded today of how lean times currently are, I suppose, because Ciccone, the star of the, of the other day, Cogne, I, I guess, showed some of his limitations again today. And Vincenzo Nibali lost time as well. Brian, the saying goes that if life hands you lemons, then you make lemonade. If life hands you citrons, I guess you make cedrata. Ineos were handed some citrons towards the top of the Mortirolo this evening when, or today, earlier in the stage, when Richie Port punctured and Richard Carapaz was left with only our audio diarist, Pavel Sivakov, who did a fantastic ride today. He's also sent in a fantastic audio diary entry tonight, which we will play unfiltered without further ado. Here's Pavel, fresh from the stage. Hey, guys. Uh, what a day. Stage 16 done, probably uh, the hardest day of the Giro. Yeah, I think it's going to be the hardest day of the Giro in terms of uh, of the length of the, the climbing, of the way it was raced. For a super, super tough day. Um, so, yeah, basically three massive climbs, um, including the Passare Mortirolo. <laughs> Luckily, the easy side which was not that easy um so yeah at the start it's uh as usual in the valley it kicked off a lot of attacks but uh, didn't go anywhere and then after 30k we hit the first long climb it was a 20 kilometer climb about six percent average yeah, big groups start going and actually there were some dangerous riders in there uh, guys like Valverde, Kelderman Arendsman. So yeah, guys, or Jan Hirt, guys who are, let's say, yeah, I mean, dangerous. They are 10 minutes on GC, so for us, was kind of the type of guys we we don't mind letting go in the breakaway. 
because we can keep it under control and that's what we did. I think um, today we showed that uh, we've got a strength uh, to, to control the race. Uh, we we managed the day really well. Um, and also now in the last week, there is a race in the race, you know, race for podium, for positions, for top 10, which we saw that uh, in more Tirolo, Astana kind of took over, um, speeded up the pace. And also in the last climb, uh, Bahrain came as well um, to try and uh, break things up. Um, actually, they came in the second last climb, which was a sneaky five kilometer at eight percent which is uh which is actually harder than superga so the, that one that one was hard also and added to uh the fatigue of the day he <sighs> was it was really hard yeah it was just solid i think the, the, the break was really strong but yeah the boys did an amazing job uh it was a good day for us uh richard finished in the front Fortunately, he didn't get that little bunny second. Um, chapeau to Jay. Uh, but yeah, Bahrain went pretty hard in that last climb. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy. Personally, I'm really happy with my performance today. Uh, I think that was my best day in the Giro so far. Uh, I was up there with the like, last five guys, maybe. Uh, which is good. Uh, good, f- good for my confidence for the rest of the week. I think it was my biggest day out in terms of like load... Uh, kilojoules and all that kind of stuff and um yeah i think i i had like something like seven thousand calories burned today but yeah it was a bit of rain in the last downhill was a wet downhill a bit of rain and my screen was was wet and nowadays i think we're all like a little bit uh geeky with uh, with the numbers and stuff and uh fortunately well on the garments when you when it's touch screen and when it's getting wet sometimes when you press in one place it's actually somehow pressing another spot so yeah i press save my ride and it presses this card uh, and it's kind of like you have to press it two times i pressed it i pressed saved again so i could quit this card one and press it this card again and discarded right at the same time i, could, I was asked for interview so i was like in my head i was I, I wasn't really concentrated on the interview i was yeah i mean i answered the questions but i was in my head i was only thinking about the fact that i discarded that right and that i was pissed so yeah <laughs> that's a little, little fail of the day uh but uh no i should be happy with with, with today i think uh we've done a good job and yeah let's see what tomorrow brings uh, so yeah that's it for me tonight cheers guys so a hard day, but all pretty fine and dandy as far as Ineos Grenadiers are concerned. Will they be happy tonight, Brian, with the way things went today? Well, I mean, I I always attach quite a lot of importance, and I say this about prologue time trials, but I also say it about sprints at the end of stages, even between climbers, guys who can't sprint. And Jai Hindley's sprinting ability on this Giro is really impressing me, and it's suggesting to me that he's got a lot of juice a lot of spice a lot of kick left in his legs and i would be slightly concerned about that if i was richard carapaz yeah i agree and two things on that it's it's not the few centimeters that he just pipped him on the line with it's it's the freshness that we can that we can see in the way jai hindley is riding he's very alert he's really present he doesn't miss any moves he's really turned into quite the the racer uh, during this year in my opinion but i remember being at the press conference in 2019 to the stage that also went over Motirolo uh, in pretty ghastly weather when Chicona won. And I remember the look on Carapaz's face. You see, at that time, he, he had the jersey. And he looked like, not that he'd stolen it, because he certainly hadn't, but he'd outsmarted Roglic and Nibali, in my opinion. They were way too focused on each other. And he had like a bit of a smirk, or as you would say in Italian, a smorfio. Today... Smorfia, sorry. So today, though, even if he's in the jersey and even if he, you know, on paper at least, and it, it kind of starts to look a little bit more on paper than, than in reality, he looked a bit more concerned. And he has every reason to be concerned, in my opinion, because he, he's not in it. In spite of having the jersey, he's not in a super comfortable position. Uh, because I think John Hindley would potentially be a better time trialist in Verona if, if everything is equal. It probably won't be. The same could be said to I think about... 
I think we'll really see there with Jai Hindley's time trialing, we'll really see how much work has been put in yeah. this winter because he's only just joined Bora Hansgrohe. He's on a new bike, new equipment. And there's a climb on that time. There's a Torricella in Verona. And then you have Almeida, who you, you couldn't really rule him out anymore because he's still he's trailing behind. He needs, to, he needs to find a different set of legs for the last mountain stages, but he, you can't really write him off at this point. So there's, there's a, I sense um, an element of concern in Carapaz's eyes, even if he's wearing the yellow jersey. Sorry, the pink jersey. Funny you should mention Almeida. Sí, está claro. He ha sido el primer asalto, ¿no? Pero bueno, eh, vamos a seguir día a día intentándolo, forzando, forzando la máquina y bueno, eh, en la etapa 20 pues sacaremos conclusiones, ¿no? Pero bueno, de momento les vemos muy igualados. Almeida incluso que controla muy bien su ritmo y no, no se termina de, de descolgar, pero bueno. Brian, Peo Bilbao at the finish today, the Bahrain rider who well, was, was invaluable for Mikael Landa, he was very keen to point out how well Almeida had ridden, how dogged he'd been, how many times he'd come back today. Are we at the point where Carapaz and, and even Hindley have to switch their focus or certainly put their focus very much on distancing Almeida? The one caveat to this is that Almeida has not impressed a lot of people with his descending on this Giro d'Italia. And well, we saw descents play a role today on the Mortirolo. Certainly some riders go wrong on the Mortirolo descent. There are some tricky descents coming up tomorrow and also particularly on the stage in the Dolomites on Saturday. However, with his current deficit, is Jao Almeida the current clubhouse leader, Brian? At 44 seconds down... 17 kilometers of time trial in Verona. He will gain. I would be astonished if he didn't gain more than 44 seconds on Carapaz and 41 seconds on Hindley over 17 kilometers in Verona. Yeah, you can tell they're concerned about it because they, they, they spend a lot. I mean, that's the common goal they have at this point. I, they're, they're Carapaz and Jai Hindley, they're, they're two main competitors at the moment, but they have a common goal being trying to really throw everything they can at Almeida. And Almeida's just, he's, he's riding a defensive race at this point at least. And he, he, he's, I think he really is extremely good at keeping his cool. You know, he's, he's often distant, but distance, but he's never really sent, you know, they're not going to count like, he's not hit the floor, he's not out in the ropes, but he's just like... For such a young rider, he really knows his own limits quite well because he never, obviously never goes in red. Because if he did, he would have lost a lot more time. We, in the car today, on the way to the finish, we were speaking to a very close acquaintance, associate of Jai, Jai Hindley, not Jai Hindley, Joao Almeida, who we will not name, but who gave him an absolutely glowing character reference. Um, gave the sense, the impression of someone who is incredibly even-tempered, laid-back, easy to work with, a joy kind. to work with, kind indeed. And The uh, reason why it came up was that I called it, uh, this uh, <laughs> person that we apparently can't mention. Well, we can if you want. Yes, my good friend Ken Sommer, who's also the agent of, together with Joao Correra, who runs the company that represents Joao Almeida. And I've been sort of wondering why, because you don't really get a sense of who's behind the mask, I mean, if there is any mask, which Ryan made it. not happy if someone doesn't rock into the mix zone and, you know, start cracking jokes. I don't know, like Jerry Seinfeld. I think that's probably pushing it a little bit, Daniel. But I just feel like we don't really... And, and you can... Well, to prove my point, here's a, here's a rider who could potentially win the Giro and Italian TV haven't really spent in the entirety of this Giro five minutes trying to figure out who is this guy. And if they did, they probably shouldn't go to him because every, when I see him every morning in the mix zone, he doesn't really give away much. It, and they, that could be too, they could go both ways. Maybe there isn't much to tell. He's still a young rider. And, but he seemed just really leveled. And um, when we spoke today uh, to Ken Sommer, he, you know, it's, it's pretty normal for an agent to, to sing praises for their riders. But I trust Ken enough to know that, that he really means it when he says he's a very, he says he's one of the nicest riders he's, he's ever represented. And he has a lot of Danish riders, so I believe there's some stiff competition for that title. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science and Sport. Science and Sport, fueled by science. 
Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. As you'll know, Ineos Grenadiers are one of the teams that use Science in Sport products as they are doing in the Giro d'Italia. And recently, there's been a study in which Science in Sport tested feeding athletes 120 grams of beta fuel per hour across gels, chews and drinks. And the study has been published in the Journal of Applied Physiology. And it shows after three hours of sustained effort, athletes were using 1.5 grams of carbohydrate per minute the highest oxidation of carbohydrates ever seen in a study, and there was no stomach upset, no unwelcome side effects for the riders. In addition, 50% of the energy used was from the beta fuel. There was no crossover from carbohydrate to fat usage taking place. If you want to find out more about that study, go to the Journal of Applied Physiology because it's some really interesting stuff. And it is kind of revolutionising the way that riders fuel in the Grand Tours. You can also use the beta fuel range yourself, of course, and get 25% off with the discount code SISCP25 at scienceinsport.com. Ah, va bene. Ah, ho capito. Parla inglese, eh? Sì, parla tutte le lingue. Vuole fare un'intervista? Ma non le riprese, vero? No, no, no. Radiofonica. Metto la mascherina, scusa un attimo. Come ti chiami già? Valentina Turchetti. Valentina? Valentina Turchetti. Well, Brian, that was the fan club of the Trotta di Gavardo, the Trout of Gavardo, Filippo Tagliani, who we're trying our best to turn into a cult figure. Um, that was his family, his friends, his girlfriend, Valentina, to whom I should apologize because we had quite a lengthy conversation this morning, but can't include all of it here. Um, I asked Valentina... Um, Filippo Tagliani's girlfriend, what she made of our, our other good friend, Gianni Savio, Filippo's team manager, the drone hopper team manager. And Valentina said, he's doing his best. Which sounded slightly, seemed slightly barbed, but they were in great spirits this morning. And they had special white t-shirts made up. There were maybe 30 or 40 of them with um, Filippo Tagliani's face on the front. Tagliani Fence Club. The Italians always say Fence Club, not Fan Club. Oh, they would even say Fence Club. Fence Club. Fence Club. Um, but Gavardo was very close to the start this morning. I hadn't realised how close it was to late. Garda, we actually, as we drove out of Salot, beautiful Salot, I must say, this morning, and we'd we'd been hearing from John Foote in the Kilometre Zero about the, the sinister history of Salot, and I wasn't, well, I know that side of Lake Garda, but I hadn't spent much time in, or hadn't spent any time in Salot, and wasn't expecting quite such an opulent, beautiful, elegant place, which sort of presented itself in its best light this morning with that lovely, again, we're going to talk about the light quality, um, with that lovely sort of haze over Lake Garda and the sun just burning behind the, the clouds or the haze. And it really was a beautiful scene this morning with, as I said to you, Brian, as we left, a, a real sense that we were we had arrived in a cycling heartland. That doesn't often happen nowadays on the Giro d'Italia, but Brescia, where we were, so the easternmost point really of Lombardy is a region which has lots of teams, races junior teams, under 23 teams, lots of famous personalities from the past and uh, there were big crowds and I really got a sense this morning that there were a lot of people who knew their onions when it came to professional cycling. And a lot of manufacturing here, around here that's, that's relevant for cycling, all kinds of equipment textile etc etc this is, this is also a place that makes, makes money producing relevant material for for cycling brian today was the wine stage it was los sforzato was the wine that was chosen to be honored to be promoted for this year's wine stage an unusual choice a left field choice it's not a wine that's very well known outside maybe of that's exactly it. why they did it well, outside of italy but the most disappointing aspect of it is that or was that in previous years the wine has also been showcased in the press room um i remember a couple of years ago when we had the francia corta stage there was a beautiful you know long table with a white tablecloth and we were served Francia Corta as much Francia Corta as we as we judged 
um, or as we thought, judicious to drink while we were working. Today, there wasn't a trace of the sfortato. No. And it was quite the hike to get to the, the sala stamp or the press room. So <laughs> we, could have, we could have needed a bit of a encouragement by the time we got there. Brian, tell us about sfortato. Yeah, so it's also a, a type of wine that, not from the origin, but in, in, in the interpretation of it, that I haven't really been that keen on and i look forward to i've already picked the one you and i are having tonight we are having i i yeah you kind of stipulated it on, on the car journey um on the way here that we had to have some sort of or something certainly something from this area yeah and it's 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 on paper it should be something that i like it's it's a it's made out, out of at least a a clone that's very similar it is a clone of nebbiolo called chiavanesca and it's grown on these really steep slopes that we also saw during the stage, and we certainly also saw it driving down from Aplica to where we are now. And it's um, it's not an easy place to farm, and it's definitely not an easy place to... There's two types of ripeness, and I'm going to make this really short, Daniel. There's, there's, the, there's the sugar ripeness in grapes, and there's the phenolic ripeness. And, and this is a pretty cold area, even in the uh, during the height of summer, because some of these vineyards are as high up as six, seven hundred meters uh, up on those hillsides. And it's a pretty dark, narrow valley. It doesn't get a lot of sunlight, so they ripen quite late. And what they also do, which I guess in a certain way could be compared a little bit to how they produce Amarone, they, they age the grapes uh, quite significantly before they, they press them. Brian, we both learned a new Italian expression today, this evening, heroic viticulture, which refers to the, the winemaking here in the Valtellina. Heroic because the vines are so difficult to work on. They're so steep, as you say. And a few years ago, there was a documentary made in Italy, quite an acclaimed documentary by a gentleman called Ermano Olmi, documenting precisely this, uh, just, well, the the heroic nature or the heroic undertaking that is making wine in this part of the world. Um, I would recommend that documentary to anyone. As I say, it did receive several awards. And it's a, it's a beautiful snapshot, not only of the wine industry up here, but also life in general up here. Um, th- there are some interesting things. We said it's not our favourite part of Italy. Um, I've thought, Brian, and you'll scoff at this, about making uh, or visiting this part of Italy out out of the or outside of the cycling season for two reasons well one there's a trail race a running race called the Valtellina wine trail which has become quite famous um there are various distances you can run one's 42.2 kilometers so sort of marathon distance and you run through the wineries actually indoors in some cases as well as through the vines up the terraces and it looks quite spectacular there's another one a vertical kilometer race called uh, the valtellina tube race which goes up an old funicular so so a thousand meters of of um, altitude gain talking of altitude gain there's a lot more tomorrow brian and uh, not quite as much as today 3561 on the station ponte di legno to lavarone in trentino with Brian, two very difficult climbs in the last 30 or 35 kilometers of the stage. The Passo del Vetriolo, followed by the Monte Rovere climb. Now, the Passo del Vetriolo is 11.8 kilometers long, 7.7% average, gains 914 meters. And the Monte, uh, Monte Rovere is one of the hardest climbs in the Giro. It's almost eight kilometers long. And the average gradient is 9.9%. And that tops out, Brian, just a few kilometers from the finish. Indeed, it's eight kilometers from the finish. And there's not much of a descent down to Lavarone, which is over 1,000 meters above sea level. You have to think we're going to see more changes on general classification. And with some slightly, well, certainly one slightly easier stage to come the following day in Treviso, finishing in Treviso, you have to think that some of the riders aspiring to win this Giro d'Italia will want to put the pressure on again. For sure. Those two last climbs are definitely no joke. And the accumulated fatigue of, of today, climbing 5,000 vertical meters, is going to be felt by a lot of the riders, even the best climbers tomorrow. I think the last climb tomorrow will be really a 
key element of who's going to win the Giro. I think the you know the, the podium or the individual placements in the podium might still be up for grabs. We don't know that yet. But if anyone shows any weakness on the last climb, even if it's not finishing on the climb, they'll be punished really hard. I think tomorrow is going to cause a lot more damage than today did. And because the second last climb is just the descent and then they start the last climb, those two teams that can really put the pressure on there, and I'm, I'm especially thinking Brian Victorious, if they really want to do something with Michelanda, the, the, the Merlin, the Marlin of Murcia, <laughs> you know, the type of the fastest fish in the, in the ocean, one, but one that just pops up now and then, tomorrow would be a really good um, day to do it. And he, he has those days, doesn't he, during the Giro. He picks one day where he really throws everything at it. Uh, it doesn't often succeed, but there's a, he has a really good possibility. Tomorrow. We saw today how strong the team was. It's a great morale there, and I think, I think they're going to go hard tomorrow on the second last, and I think Landa's going to attack tomorrow. Brian, speaking of very steep climbs, last year at the Giro d'Italia, in the very last week, you were with us, and we were with our great friend, Richard Moore, and we set off early one morning. We'd, have, we'd had a lovely meal in Rovereto, near Rovereto, the previous evening. That We were up at the crack of dawn the next morning, Rich and I, because I was taking him to tackle a road that has been dis- described as the hardest climb in the world. It's called the Via Scanupia. Unfortunately, we didn't have bikes with us that day. We were on foot. And off we went. And we did conquer some of La Via Scanupia. But it was typical of the adventures that we do still, and we, we always did, and all, I always did with Rich, undertake on the Giro d'Italia as part of our Giro coverage. And I have um, very, very fond memories of that morning last year. So this is tonight's Giro del Buffalo. Let's go back to La Via Scanupia 12 months ago. Il Giro del Buffalo, remembering Rich and Moore. Oh, Rich, good morning. <laughs> Promise me an adventure, Daniel. We've driven through... Challenge. A challenge. We've driven through... Yeah, the mystery challenge. We've driven through the rush hour traffic. The trend to rush. Quite surprised at how much traffic there was. Where are these people going? They're not coming here. That's for sure. There's only, there are only two <laughs> lunatics here. Well, do you know what awaits you, Rich? I'm giving you a, li- a little briefing. Well, you told me it's a very steep road. Europe's steepest road. Well, it's been described as the hardest climb in the world um, on, on tarmac that is possible, um, feasible on a road bike, the Via Scanupia in um, Bezzanello. This, is, this has become legendary on forums and, um, and message boards over the years, over the last 10 or 15 years, a mythical place of, some, of, of kind of masochistic pilgrimage. Well, I can confirm it's not mythical. It's real. We're here. We're at the we're at the foot of it, and I can see a sign up there that says forty five. Forty is that forty five percent? Forty five percent. Average gradient, I think seventeen point is it seventeen point eight percent over seven point five kilometers. Um, do you think you'll make it to the summit? Let's go. Woo. Rich, you survived the ordeal. I don't know what was harder going up or coming down. Actually, I, think, I, do. I thought you were going to say, I wonder what all the fuss was about then. No, no, no. What I'm frustrated about is that the photographs and videos they don't do it justice. I keep taking pictures. This road is so unbelievably steep. It's almost as if, I mean, I wouldn't take the car up there. Well, we couldn't, could we? We tried. We, well, we did the first few hundred metres um, and we had to park up um, a bit like... A rickety little panda or something did come down the hill. I don't know where it had come from or it must have been built up there. I, <laughs> I don't see <laughs> how it could There's a Fiat factory on the top of the mountain. What is at the top? Well, I don't know. And I'm really intrigued by these little shrines at the side of the road. Every about 50 metres or so, it seems like they go all the way up. Obviously, we didn't get to the top, unfortunately. But um, It felt like every 300 metres to me. 
Well, I've been checking the rankings again, Rich, since we got down. And the, the general consensus is that it's either the hardest um, or second hardest climb in Italy. Maybe the on one ranking... Well, only in Italy, Well, though. on one ranking, it's the second hardest in the world. These things, it depends on whether you, whether you weight it more towards steepness or length. But it's definitely in the top five in the world i would say what's coming something oh there's a lorry going up now no it's not there's, no. there's some kind of cement works or mine at the bottom but we will find out more about la via scanopia i hope and the history of it and well i have to say daniel the, the surface is horrible it's like sort of concrete um it's like porridge almost it's very uneven and it would be a very unpleasant experience to ride a bike up there would a race ever go up there i mean a big certainly race. not a certainly big, not no. certainly not and you couldn't ride down because you'd have to take your pumps your plimsolls in a bag and you'd have to walk there's down there's a car coming oh my god what? what where on earth are they going what do they think they're doing there's a car coming the other way as well but you better go oh no oh no Well, Brian, that concludes this evening's episode. We are in Trentino. We're close to Rovereto again tomorrow. Another wine-producing region, another mountainous region, which I'm happy about, I'm smiling about. Well, it never becomes routine because we know that there's a potential for these, any of these last stages in the Giro to be truly epic. That's what they always hold in store because you never really know who, who might have a bad day. You never really know who will outshine the others. And that, that sort of latent tingling potential of of an upset is also what makes these races so beautiful we've also got a kilometer zero coming out tomorrow morning uh, another one i think it's our ninth of the giro might be our eighth it's about richard carapaz the malia rosa and indeed his whole team's new mind guru robbie anderson who is here every day at the Giro d'Italia he's on the bus around the bus and helping them to conquer the or or tackle the mental challenges of leading the Giro d'Italia and that will be out tomorrow morning so I hope you're looking forward to that Brian I'm looking forward to our wine I'm looking forward to this sforzato wine and uh, maybe some pizzoccheri buonasera buonasera Daniel The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib and Lionel Byrne. Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom.